Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. The juvenile justice system in the United States is both sprawling and complicated. This week, we're joined by best-selling author and journalist Jeff Hobbs, who spent more than a year inside three very different facilities in San Francisco, Wilmington, Delaware, and New York City. It's an experience he recounts in his new book, Children of the State. He looks at the system through the lens of several young people incarcerated in these facilities and teachers and counselors who work with them. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Jeff Hobbs, your latest nonfiction book is titled Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. Tell me about this project and what you wanted to do with it. Um, thank you, Susan. Uh, yeah, Children of the State. It actually, it came out of some talks I was giving about a previous book I'd written called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, which was a very personal book about um, a late friend of mine. Um, and I was visiting a lot of schools, all kinds of schools, Ivy League colleges and public high schools and juvenile halls. And I was finding just that the conversations happening um, in the classrooms, in juvenile halls, uh, were really powerful and kept drawing me back. And I found the teachers in juvenile halls, very hard job to, to just be really um, um, deeply feeling people. And I, I just felt, you know, in my orbit of people, nobody really knew even that juvenile halls were schools. And and so that's where it started, what was just uh, um, trying to connect people to a, a truly deeply marginalized group of young people um, trying to get through a really hard passage. Your craft is immersive journalism. Tell me how you practice it in this case. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I don't love that word uh, because it, it sounds a little cultish or or like a salad dressing or something, but um, it, it just means deep dive journalism. And um, in this case, because uh, uh, I've done different kinds of projects, like Robert Peace was more reconstruction based on interviews. But um, in, in this case, it, it felt most important just to be in the rooms with young people who were incarcerated, um, you know, learning math or playing board games or playing basketball and just be there. Um, um, I think Gay Talese called it the journalism of hanging out. Um, I really just was able, through a lot of generosity of administrators and a lot of trust of families and kids, I was able to uh, have access to to these facilities and, and yeah, just be in rooms and sometimes participate in classes and um, lunchtime just talk to talk to the young men and, and young women sometimes um, and, and just uh, be there just throughout each day, every day almost. The time period that you chose was interrupted by COVID. How did that impact the work you were able to do? Oh, that, that was really hard. I mean, it was really hard for these incarcerated kids uh, because um, teachers weren't allowed in. I certainly wasn't allowed in the facilities anymore, but teachers weren't, um, they weren't really allowed um, outside of their units. Um, so it, it definitely uh, 
put a stop to to the kind of work I, I'm talking about, the observation and the the hanging out. Um, and also there, there wasn't a lot of communication possible um, between me and the, the kids and the counselors and the um, the people working inside because uh, there are just loads of regulations around technology and internet and all of that. Um, so uh, it, it was uh, it was just hard to think about what all of these kids that uh, I'd, I'd come to know pretty well were going through in uh, this really severe quarantine um, without really being able to talk to them for Every, every state, of course, has its own juvenile justice system. You chose uh, in your book to focus on three programs, one in Delaware, one in San Francisco, and one in New York City. Uh, from such a big and sprawling set of possibilities, how did you focus on these three particular ones? Um, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, it, it's a vast system, and it's important to know that the juvenile justice system is locally run. Um, not just state by state, but county by county and city by city. So it, it's this uh, really huge and confusing and convoluted landscape. So you can imagine um, a family going through it. But um, I, um, I had previous connections with each of these entities and that I, I visited maybe. Um, and uh, why I chose them is because they're very different facilities. San Francisco is more like the youth equivalent of a county jail. It's where kids go between being arrested, but before they actually see a judge to find out what's going to happen to them. Um, and so there's high turnover. It's very chaotic. Kids are going in and out to the court building next door in shackles. Um, it's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to teach. And uh, in contrast, the facility in Delaware, um, which is not far from where I grew up and I actually played uh, sports against this juvenile halls team um, when I was in high school. Uh, I, I didn't play very well, but um, um, that is a detention center where the kids there have been adjudicated by a judge. They know they're gonna be there for three months or six months or, or 12 months. So. Um, um, it's harder in certain ways, but the the atmosphere is a little different. It's almost more stable, um, though that might be hard to believe. And then Exalt in New York City is a uh, it's actually a diversion program. It's a very intensive life skills slash fellowship slash internship program for um, young people who have um, already been through the juvenile system. Um, and it is a pathway, hopefully, back into regular high school and and maybe a job, and, and hopefully for some even college. You say in the outset that it took courage for the people that you profile to agree mm -hmm. to participate. Why, why do you think it took courage? Uh, I mean, many different levels of courage. Um, the primary being uh, just safety. I mean, these are places where... Uh, um, if you can think back to high school, even like a normal high school and being a teenager where standing out in certain ways made you really vulnerable um, and could feel unsafe. And so um, imagine that 
feeling in juvenile hall where um, standing out, uh, putting yourself forward, putting your story forward um, in a certain way uh, can be really dangerous. It can put a target on your back. Um, um, and so I, I was asked, I mean, I was there for a long time, so everyone knew me and uh, I, I don't think it was that big a factor at the end of the day, but um, um, it, it would, did take a lot of courage for young people to sit with, you know, this awkward white guy in a button down and, and, and just put themselves out there. Um, and then uh, in a bigger way, a more existential way, um, these kids have all been through a lot. Um, um, I, I would say, I can't say every single kid in juvenile hall has experienced pretty severe trauma in their lives through abandonment or neglect or addiction, uh, poverty, certainly all these things. Um, but I can say every single kid that I met in juvenile hall has experienced trauma. Um, and uh, it, it takes a lot of courage to to uh, revisit that even in a even the shallow surface of that. Well, on the flip side, you say that you were given a number of warnings by the administrators to prepare yourself for the possibility of deaths in the juvenile justice system. Yeah, um, you you lose people, and uh, um, I, I was told that um, that. That happened, um, and uh, I remember I sat kind of early on with a history teacher in a, in the Delaware facility who was a really great teacher. He'd been doing it for over twenty years, so it, it um, teaching this population really was his calling. And I I asked him uh, what success was for him, um, and he said when he started when he was younger that he thought he was going to get kids into college just through his pedagogy and his energy. Um, but over the years, seeing it over and over that he now sees success for him as a teacher, just as kids surviving. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so over the course of time, um, I did get calls that uh, Tickles was killed, uh, Buck was killed shot um, um, and also uh, a different version of that you get calls that uh, that someone has killed you know there, there was a, a student who features prominently in the book who uh, was going through a lot and had lost his brother to violence and I, I was pretty close with him he was bright he was funny um, everybody was worried about him getting out and some of the decisions he would make uh, and uh, he was about a year and a half ago convicted for murder. Um, so it, it's all really everybody in their kids and adults feels it. It's it's hard. So before we do a deeper dive on the three facilities, the three books as the way you organize them, explain to me what the appropriate language is for this system and the the young people who are in the middle of it. Oh, so, uh, you know, it's funny, when I first started, I, I was very precious about um, language and how to refer to the facilities um, and programs and the, the students themselves. Uh, 
but um, uh, the kids themselves and the teachers are, are not precious about language. I mean, up to an obvious point. Um, so uh, I call them kids. Uh, the kids call it jail. Um, Do they think of their rooms as cells? I mean, I just it, how how much of a, a, a reference to the adult system that we're that we're used to is appropriate for the kind of detention that they're in? Um, yeah, I mean, the kids pretty much across the board use the language of incarceration. Um, cells and jail and um, um, the administration obviously uses terms like residency and state care and bedrooms. Um, but I, I, in talking about it, tend to, because uh, I spent almost all my time with the kids, I, I tend to, to refer to it the way that kids refer to it. In book number two, uh, you recount the history of the American juvenile justice system, really almost from our founding up to present day. Obviously, we don't have time to, to spend lots of time on that, but what's important to know about the way American society's thinking about juvenile offenders has evolved? Uh, well, what was so interesting, I, I did do this deep dive into the, the history of juvenile justice in America going back to uh, really the 1700s. Um, and uh, there, there were all these very interesting periods, the child saving movement and the orphan trains. Um, and speaking of language, a lot of our language comes from, from these uh, various um, eras and efforts of, of different people. But um, what I thought was the most uh, pertinent takeaway from, from that passage um, is the way, as a society, uh, we have, it's just been this pendulum that for hundreds of years has swung back and forth between a very severe punitive punishment of wayward children um, and very more humane, I can't say very humane, but more humane rehabilitative philosophies. Um, and it, when you read about it and you put all the different texts and testimonies together, um, you just get this sense that every time it is swinging one way, um, hopefully in the right way of rehabilitation, um, this force of gravity in politics starts to pull it back. Um, and so right now we are very much, the pendulum swing is toward um, humane rehabilitative treatment of uh, of youth who have made very bad decisions, um, really bad decisions sometimes. But um, uh, I, I think uh, starting in Missouri in the 1970s and and uh, even through the the tough on crime era of the 80s and 90s and uh, more and more today, there's just a, a focus on agency for the kids. Agency is not just choice, but efficacy of choice. Um, and uh, so the, the everything's moving in the right direction away from life sentencing, for instance. Um, but uh, again, having researched the history pretty deeply, that actually gives me some anxiety that, uh, that, um, that gravitational force is gonna start pushing it back.
You, you do include some statistics, and it's, I think it's important to get it on the record because your journalism is a story of individuals. Uh, but just so people have an understanding of the size of the population, you said that over the past decade, two million minors have been arrested in the United States per year, 30,000 locked up in secure facilities on any given day, high turnover, roughly 150,000 young people spent time in jail, even if only for an afternoon in the span of a year. That's recent numbers. Uh, let me add a couple more. That's half of the youth incarceration recorded in the late 1990s. So that speaks to what you're saying about the, the pendulum. And the average length, uh, average length excuse me, of detainment have shortened significantly. But here's an important, and you call it the most important statistic, recidivism kids that can go back because they've committed other crimes has not decreased and it stands at about 84%. What was your takeaway from learning that? Um, well, I mean, recidivism is kind of the buzzword across all of justice um, um, in the current times. And uh, the takeaway, I mean, these numbers were actually very hard to put together. One takeaway is that they're actually um, because the system is so fragmented, there's not a whole lot of aggregate data of any of those numbers. It, it's a lot of um, kind of addition and, and a lot of different studies that people have to do just to uh, reduce the data um, to this simplest form. Um, and then as far as recidivism, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from uh, from that number, which um, by a lot of estimates, it tops 80%, which, which is higher than adult prison. Um, it speaks to how just com complicated that, that time of life is being a teenager and having hormones and making decisions. Um, to me, that number speaks to uh, the, um, and, and again, I'll go back to individuals here, but that number 80 plus percent uh, speaks to the psychology of locks and the way that when a kid, you know, walks into that cell in shackles and hears the bolt go behind him or her, uh, again, even if it's only for an afternoon while something gets sorted in the courthouse next door, um, even if it's just for a couple hours, um, that sound and that feeling is life altering. Um, it, it really does change people. It really changes young people. Um, and it, it, that moment, I think, makes it hard to get out of the system once you're in. All right, let's move on to book number one, which is about the Ferris School, Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, we found a YouTube clip of a news story uh, from Delaware from 1997, when the facility uh, was first opening, uh, or at least that a new part of it was opening. Uh, let's watch and then we'll come back and learn what you saw today. This morning, the public got its first look through the brand new $14 million Ferris School for Boys, a school 50 young offenders will move into by March. Last week, the state legislature decided to send only the least violent teenagers to Ferris. That means this building will function more like a real school than a maximum security prison. Architects have designed this building to feel comfortable, almost like a college dorm with some notable exceptions, namely the ability to lock down residents. And if you look here in a typical cell, even the light fixtures have no moving parts. 
And even though this room is quite bright, here's a big yellow window. It's deceiving. The glass is actually bulletproof and quite thick. Jeff Hobbs, what is the Ferris School like today? Um, I uh, So again, to remind you, the Ferris School is the uh, detention center where students have been um, sentenced by a judge, so they, they know what their term is. And uh, uh, typically, um, segments of three months, so uh, three, six, nine, or up to 12 months, I, I don't think they keep kids there longer than a year. Um, and uh, um, I, I wouldn't describe it in that that sort of cheery voice that that was being used. Um, it it doesn't feel exactly like a school um, again because of the locks and the bolts and it's it's very loud. But um, uh, I was really moved at Ferris School by the the teachers and the efforts of the teachers. Um, the population's a little smaller. There's uh, typically around 30 kids there these days. Um, and uh, um, so the, the education wing is sort of an L shape of classrooms around a library um, that doesn't have a lot of books in it, but it's a good meeting place. Um, and, uh, uh, but headline, I would say it, it doesn't feel like a school. I mean, it does feel like a juvenile hall. There's a lot of friction, a lot of arguing, um, just minute by minute. Because when you have a lot of a lot of adults telling a lot of kids what to do and where they can and can't go, uh, there's going to be friction. What is a what would a typical day be like for a young person confined to this this facility? Um, well, they start pretty early uh, and and meal and, and some rec time in the gym, which is mostly basketball. Um, and there's a pretty nice gym there. Um, and uh, but the the meat of the day is is a really um, regimented school day. It's like three classes and then lunch and then three more classes. and uh, and then at this detention center, they have a pretty robust uh, sports program um, with a coach who's been doing it for a long time. They even have a football team and a lacrosse team. And uh, I'd love to talk about that later. But um, um, yeah, there's about six classrooms and the, and the students basically spend all day shuttling between uh, math and, and English and, uh, you know, financial skills and uh, uh, home ec. There, there's no science classes because um, you, you can't have that kind of equipment or the textbooks in a juvenile hall. Um, so I, I think the teachers, as much as possible, try to try to simulate a, a school day and get these kids credit. Um, but uh, um, it's hard. Just the uh, the there's a lot of mental illness and. Um, uh, uh, each kid is experience, experiencing each moment in, in a very different way. And uh, you, you can imagine that's really hard to run a classroom like that. During the time that they are there, how much contact with the outside world are they permitted? Um, it, it depends on each case. I mean, some more than others. It, it's a privilege to uh, contact is a privilege and it depends on 
sort of their home family guardian situation. Um, um, some kids just don't have adults showing up for them as much, e even on the phone. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, I, I would say that's part of the big picture. Um, I think as a young person, even if you've made a terrible choice, uh, I learned um, if you have an adult standing behind you, supporting you, um, there's usually ways to avoid juvenile hall. So, so most of these kids just, um, by virtue of being there, don't, don't have a lot of adult support on the outside. Um, but, uh, uh, when they do that, they can make phone calls and, and receive visits pretty regularly. So we said at the outset that you tell these stories through the lens of individuals. In the case of Ferris, your focus is on Josiah Wright, 18 years old and a returnee to Ferris. Uh, what should we know about his story? Oh, Josiah, um, he, he was a really quiet person. So, uh, I mean, I sort of showed up at Ferris. This was in August of 2019. Um, and uh, I should say these kids are pretty accustomed to being observed. Um, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but uh, there's just a lot of district people and and uh, juvenile justice system administrators who are coming through a lot just to observe classrooms. And, uh, and there's always that kind of eye in the sky camera system in every space, so they're used to being watched. Um, and so at first I, I was just another, again, kind of white person in a button down observing them. Um, but a, as I participated in classes and and hung around, um, it became more familiar. But uh, uh, Josiah is really, a, he's an introverted kid and he was just at that time beginning the second of two years that he was would ultimately spend incarcerated uh, during his teenage years, which, I mean, think about that two years out of uh, out of four, it's it's a lot. Um, and uh, at first, he didn't seem to want much to do with me. And uh, I totally respected that some kids did some kids did not. But um, as the weeks went on, he would you know, maybe sit next to me sometimes and just ask what I was writing about and uh, and kind of, uh, I just said I'm writing about, you know, the stories, your stories, um, whoever is comfortable sharing. And and um, ultimately he, he kind of, it was his decision. He, he said like, maybe we could meet for lunch. I, I have some things to say, I've seen some things. Um, and I think the most important thing to say about Josiah is that right at, around that time, this was in the fall of 2019, um, he had spent so much time in juvenile hall at that point that he'd actually um, earned enough high school credits through juvenile hall classes to actually finish high school on time and beyond that even contemplate um, some kind of college option, maybe, maybe vocational school or community college. Um, so at the same time, I was meeting him, and and he was sort of becoming interested in uh, talking 
um, and telling his story. He was also um, encountering this pretty huge life juncture where um, he, he was actually faced with deciding um, whether he was going to try to graduate high school and go to college and and have that life or uh, or not or go back home and uh, um, um, and do do whatever he'd been doing um, before juvenile hall um, so uh, it, it was a pretty powerful moment to to be with someone with the help of a great many very dedicated people, Josiah actually was accepted into a community college in upstate New York. Uh, and this is an inner city Wilmington, Delaware kid going um, and uh, going to a, a place that he'd never been to before into a, a, co a college campus. How did it all turn out for him? Um, yeah, so, so he did. Uh, long story short, uh, make that hard decision. And I talked before about sort of safety and vulnerability when you're standing out in that environment. Um, and he endured all that and did the extra work and uh, um, with a lot of help from coordinators and, and special counselors and teachers um, got uh, college acceptance. Um, and then what happens is, you know, the a kid like Josiah is in in juvenile hall, and uh, it's kind of this great conflict of the juvenile justice system that I encountered because uh, you're incarcerating kids in jail-like environments, and and that's um, often kids who haven't done anything all that bad, um, and, and that's wrong. But while they're in juvenile hall, Josiah was just surrounded by people who who cared and rooted for him, um, kids and adults, and got him to this place of uh, being able to go to college. Uh, I don't think that would have happened otherwise. I know it wouldn't have. Um, and yet, if you can imagine that same kid being kind of dropped off by a bus in the middle of New York State, um, and uh, it was <clears throat> unfortunate, just it was happened to be the timing, it was the middle of winter, um, it was still COVID um, measures, so the campus was half full anyway. Um, and so he, he was six or seven hours from anyone who loved him uh, in, in this totally new environment and uh, without, uh, again, this really tight orbit of people who just intensively cared about him. Uh, and so he, he got there. Um, he earned his way there, but then, um, as you can imagine, maybe if, again, if you think back to being 18 years old and feeling alone, uh, he, he got really homesick and really uh, depressed, and he uh, didn't last very long at college. And reading it, and and just even thinking about the situation as you describe it, was he almost doomed to fail? I mean, did the counselors and teachers have? Uh, a, a noble goal, but putting a kid in a, cir a circumstance like that without a support system, could it ever have worked? Um, yeah, the, the goal was so noble. Um, and uh, um, Josiah did work hard and, and uh, he, he got a lot out of that achievement. Um, but uh, there was when, you know, when he did 
drop out and come back home. He was actually there also on a lacrosse scholarship, which is a whole other kind of interesting factor of the of the story, because um, he learned to play lacrosse at at this detention center. Um, but I, I think when the teachers, when the dust settled and he was home and he was safe um, and got uh, a job at a boys club and, and started moving forward with his life in a in a different but still um, I would argue pretty positive way um, and the, the teachers who had pushed him were able to step back themselves um, and try to separate uh, kind of their own hopes and the threads of the story that made them feel good versus what uh, maybe was best for Josiah and what he was capable of um, that they could maybe start to talk about how uh, mistakes were made along the way. Uh, but if you look at the greater landscape, this whole situation, the fact that he even had to go to New York State um, speaks a bit to how hard it is to find placement for any kid with a juvenile record, um, even Votech schools, most of them locally, um, locally around Ferris, weren't accepting kids who had been in juvenile hall. Um, so there's that. Um, there are not a lot of options. We have, um, I'm going to jump in. We have about 20, oh, a little more than 20, 25 minutes to go in our conversation. And we, we've got two more stops on your journey. The, the second one is Woodside Learning Center in San Francisco. And uh, here, rather than focusing a great deal on individual uh, detainees, you focused on two of the administrators, Chris Lanier, the principal, and Megan Mercurio, the English teacher. Uh, the parallel thing in Woodside is that from the time you arrived there, they were on track to close down. So you've got a parallel story going on of running the place by knowing that at the same point, its days were numbered. So t tell me what you learned there and how you processed it all. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, Woodside, just to set the scene a little bit, Woodside is this, I mean, if you imagine a prison, it, that's what it is. It's this big cinder block structure. It's massive. Um, um, and it is uh, on top, but it's on the top of Twin Peaks neighborhood in San Francisco. So you're in this beautiful neighborhood. You're looking down on the Golden Gate Bridge, and on clear days you can see the water. Um, but um, you know the, these kids are in this very archaic building, um, and I mentioned it, it's a place with high turnover, very chaotic. Um, it was built for uh, something like 150 inmate uh, residents, inmates. Um, but the population now, we talked about it, it's closer to, on a given day, 30 kids. So um, it has this kind of eerie feeling inside just because there's a lot of empty spaces, a lot of empty rooms. There's this big hallway in the middle. It's a little bit like The Shining. Um, but uh, um, I, uh, Chris Lanier, the principal, and Megan Mercurio, the one of the ELA teachers um, are just tremendous educators. And uh, um, and I focused on the educators there, again, because the turnover among the kids was so high, it was hard to 
to really connect with anyone. And, and also they were going through so much uh, uh, chaos with judges and the court system. I mean, it, it was a hard place, but uh, um, the there was this team of educators there and they were so special and uh, um, so consistent. And, uh, and yet, as you mentioned, there was this uh, city movement to shut down the juvenile hall system and as with a lot of political movements, it encompassed not just the system itself, but the people associated with the system, even the good people. So, uh, um, so th these were teachers kind of fight, uh, you know, teaching those kids. It, it's a it's a noble battle, um, but they were also themselves at the mercy of of these systemic decisions going on that that were uh, en route to uh, you know taking their classrooms away. It seems hard to imagine being able to run a school with the student population shifting on a weekly or, or monthly basis. There's just absolutely no consistency to the, your exchange with the students. How did they do it? Yeah, I mean, even a, on a daily basis, um, kids would just be there in first period and gone in third period and new kids would be there. Um, and if you can imagine, uh, like at Ferris, with some stability, they, they could group kids according, to some degree, according to their academic levels. But in San Francisco, you had kids reading at a second grade level in class with kids reading at a 11th grade level. Um, and I, I think they, they do it by, uh, well, I want to describe Megan. Um, which if you picture like a juvenile hall teacher, you would probably imagine a pretty hardened person who, who had seen it all and, uh, and maybe ha had a pretty, pretty tough exterior to, to kind of deal with, with everything around them and meet out discipline and all of that. But uh, Megan was this person who actually absorbed it all, this very sensitive, empathetic person. She, cried at some point pretty much every day um, just because she was feeling it um, and, and the kids had really hard stories um, and usually teachers like that don't last very long in a in a job like this but um, uh, Megan has been doing it a long time almost uh, 15 years now um, so I, I would say their philosophy at that school is just to to create that space where you can look a kid in the eye and ask them what's going on. And uh, when you create that space, I don't mean to get too kumbaya, except that I, I've seen it happen and I've, I've seen it work. Um, it, it does settle people um, and uh, it, it does uh, um, make things easier. We, you dedicated the book to one counselor that you met there, Mama Rose. Who was she? Oh, gosh. Yeah, Mama Rose. Uh, she was a counselor there. Um, so when I say counselor, um, it's what you would think of as guards um, and uh, what most people think of as guards. But um, within the juvenile hall spaces, the people responsible for discipline um, they actually spend more time with the kids than anybody else, including the mental health counselors, et cetera. Um, and so they, it's a hard job, but uh, 
um, they do see themselves as counselors and and the people with the most face time to to really help the kids through. Um, anyway, Mama Rose uh, had been doing that job for um, over forty years, and uh, mostly in the in the girls' unit in San Francisco. There there was a a female unit, um, and uh, uh, she was just uh, I, I could go on and on. She was a very uh, special person um, in the sense that, uh, um, gosh, I have so many stories, but um, anyway, she could sit with the girls and, and just talk about life and and books and uh, cooking. Um, and it would be like sitting on your her front porch or something, but she could also say one word to the the toughest boy in the place and, and just shut him down and he'd be like, oh yes, Mama Rose, I'm sorry, Mama Rose. Um, so she, she was that and uh, um, we miss her. So I, 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 uh, I thought it was appropriate to make that dedication. Did Woodside close? So it's still open. Um, I was there, they had this uh, sort of ticking clock of, of one year and the city of San Francisco had formed this uh, a pretty a pretty public uh, blue ribbon committee to figure out um, kind of, I think, very noble intentions to figure out, again, the most humane way to uh, to treat the young people who've made bad decisions. Um, but uh, it was very predictable. The, the issue of juvenile justice is way more complicated even in a pretty small city with a small juvenile delinquent population um it was way more complicated than a group of 12 people um could do in a year or two so uh uh yeah the juvenile hall there is very much still open um i'm servicing older kids uh, but I mean, as Chris Lanier, who's the principal, I haven't talked about him, but, uh, um, you know, a really good guy, his careers in special education, um, didn't like working in a prison like building, but, um, as this committee was, uh, making plans and generating pictures and things, um, one of the things he said was like, you know, if a kid shoots a gun at someone, he can't go to daycare. Um, he needs supervision. Um, so they have to account for that. And that's where the system gets really complicated and really messy um, is the kids who've made really bad decisions and really are dangerous. We have about 15 minutes left uh, in New York City, a very different kind of program called Exalt. Uh, along with your, your time there, CBS News visited in June of 2021 and did a story. We have just a clip from that to show. About two years ago, Rafael Soto was on the wrong path, incarcerated and at a crossroads. And I had two choices. It was either keep messing up or was try to do something different. So when I got referred to Exalt, of course, took the chance. A chance he says changed his life. He, like many other court-involved New York City teens, have been referred by judges, district attorneys, or even schools to nonprofit Exalt. The young person who is jail-bound at the point of entry 
and then at the point that they complete our organization, they have a brand new trajectory. There have been so many success stories, like a young woman who came in with a serious felony charge, facing five years in jail. The judge and the district attorney were so impressed that this young woman uh, had the power to turn her life around in those ways, to get her high school diploma, to go on to CUNY, and we were able to avoid jail time in her case. Jeff Hobbs uh, Exalt has been around for almost 20 years now, uh, and so the city of New York must be pleased with its outcome. How does it work? Um, yes, Exalt has been around, and they were so wonderful to let me um, be in, in one of their cycles. Um, and uh, it works by, uh, they're called cycles. They're these four-month, um, very intensive, life skills programs where uh, about 15 or 20 kids are placed in a classroom with one um, facilitator slash teacher slash life coach. Um, these teachers are really everything at Exalt. Um, and so it's a very regimented four month long program. Um, they go to their regular schools during the day um, and then they uh, make their way to this classroom. Um, it's at the very bottom tip of Manhattan. There's a view of the Statue of Liberty. Um, and, and that's an important piece of it, the, uh, the location, because um, it's an expensive piece of real estate. But the idea is to show these kids that, you know, they belong there too. They, they deserve to have nice views too. Um, a lot of these kids don't necessarily believe that at first. Um, and so it's two months in the classroom. And then um, the second two months involves uh, another very intensive internship out in the city, maybe at a law office or real estate or parks and rec or, or working in schools. Um, and then uh, every week coming together and, and just sharing uh, what they've learned and building this fellowship. And then um, the graduation of that cycle was uh, uh, really one of the more special celebrations I've I've seen in my adulthood. Um, Your focus they, was on a young man named Ian Alvarez who did not make it through the program. Uh, one telling sentence is in, in, in this section, Exalt asked quite explicitly for a reinvention of self. Ian desired a reversion to the self before the fight that put him in there. Um, yeah, um, so I, uh, it wasn't intentional that I, I would follow um, that young man who, it wasn't intentional that, um, that I would tell that story of somebody not making it through the program. Um, but uh, Ian's story was uh, uh, really powerful. Um, one reason was that he had a very dedicated father figure in his life, um, which is pretty rare in this uh, um, population of in incarcerated kids. Um, there's not a lot of dads around. Um, and uh, the other part of his story was that um, because of his legal situation, he was from Patterson, New Jersey, but he uh, legally was basically kicked out of his hometown by the court system. So he he was living in Brownsville, Brooklyn with an aunt and, and he couldn't 
go back home. Um, and so that made his uh, time in Exalt e even more challenging that he, he wasn't going home um, to any kind of stability at night. Um, and so that, that sentence you read about reversion to the self before the fight, um, out of context, it, it, out of context, it, it could read like you know reversion to the the troublemaker self, reversion um, to that kid who who got in this big fight. But um, I think what what he was really wanting was just to go back home again and and be that kid playing video games in his home with his with his little brother. Um, because uh, not only did he go through the juvenile hall system and all of that, but but he lost his home, um, and uh, and so for a minute he he sort of found a home and a community in Exalt. I'm oversimplifying his story, um, but uh, as time wore on, and he got more and more homesick and and kind of lonely in his own skin. Um, I, I think it, even for a program as dedicated and wonderful as the Exalt program is for for showing these kids some light, um, uh, I think his uh, the burden he was carrying out of juvenile hall was was just too much for him. So where is Ian Alvaro today? Um, he's doing all right. He, he's back home. Um, so he did uh, get he did get home to Patterson. Uh, yeah, he, he got home, and uh, I don't know if it's the life he uh, he would have wanted to be living, but but he's uh, still working at the at the port, um, and he's not a kid anymore. He's he's in his twenties, um, and uh, but uh, it, it's clear I, I can tell from still being friends with him that uh, he didn't complete the Exalt program, but. Um, a, a lot of the qualities and the traits that the Exalt program um, and their amazing teacher, Alex Griffith, um, what the whole purpose is, um, um, not just teaching independence and competence and, and, and how to write a good email and how to interview, um, all, all those things, but teaching kids how to admit that they need help uh it's very important and, and it's harder than it sounds um for some young people it's it's really hard to say i don't know this or i um i need this uh um and uh i think he, he took a lot of those lessons on with him um and uses them so uh, uh it, it wasn't a total loss what uh happened to josiah wright um, he, he's also uh, doing all right. Um, he, he never matriculated back at college or, or anything, um, but he he actually left his home in Wilmington and lives farther south in in Delaware. Um, and uh, uh, he he works uh, mostly in retail. Um, gets along okay. He he hasn't. He is not among the recidivism statistics. He's he's stayed out and um, takes care of himself and uh, takes care of his little siblings. Um, he's a good person. So 
Your book tells the story of two young people who uh, came through the system and now have stable lives. And the statistics suggest that that's not the case in, a, in quite a number of the kids who go through this system. Your subtitle is Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. So you chose to focus on people who came through and, and achieved stability. So what do you want your readers to take away from all this? Um, well, the, the takeaway for me always is, is just to know more and hopefully care more and then hopefully do more. Um, I, I think a juvenile hall facility is an easy place if you're driving by just to to figure that's where the bad kids are and there's not much to be done there so so just drive on um but uh there there is a lot of potential there and um with a little support um um these kids josiah and ian i mean i met them and connected with them and, and was hearing their stories and uh, walking around their homes with them and all, all of that. But I, I didn't know how they would would turn out. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that they've, uh, they've turned out all right. Um, and I, I guess the takeaway is the statistics are hard and daunting, but um, um, it's not right to just forget about these kids um and uh i mean a kid living in a cell that's about the size of a dining room table um there's not many people in society who feel more forgotten than uh, than those kids and what should we know since you profile them as well about the people who work in the system oh just the, it's very easy again to equate juvenile justice with adult prison systems and hence to equate anybody who works inside a juvenile hall uh, with guards um, and wardens and um, and uh, I think the important thing to know is that uh, uh, they're not they're counselors and they're teachers and uh, um, really in the hardest teaching circumstances I've ever encountered. And I've written a lot about schools in different spaces. Um, they do really hard jobs. And, uh, you know, when we are um, trying to fix the juvenile justice system or, or just talking at a dinner party about how bad the juvenile justice system is, um, don't forget these people either, because uh, they didn't invent the system. They did not lay the bricks on these buildings. Um, they're just in there trying to do decent work. And uh, about the people that decide what the system looks like, is there a message for them? Um, yeah, I, I think the message is just to uh, keep that pendulum moving um, the way it's moving. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of those conversations tend to get tied up in resources and money. And uh, um, if uh, if all the resources went to the small number of kids who really need them, the, the kids who have done violent things, 
um, then uh, I think everybody would, would be doing a lot better off. Journalist and author Jeff Hobbs, our guest for the last hour, his latest nonfiction book is Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you, Susan. It means a lot. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 